This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to episode six of John Richardson and the Future Notes. This week we will be discussing travel. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed last week's show on education. Thank you for your uh, letters and emails, which we'll get to shortly. We are, as ever, in the company of Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. We reached the exciting point, Mark, at which three weeks ago you teased us, and now I believe you can talk about the exciting job. Yeah, I kind of don't want to now. Okay, um, Ed, how is uh, how's the fox? Uh, the fox, well, the fox. I, I think I tweeted a picture of him sunbathing happily on the roof this week. He's uh, he's been enjoying a blissful, relaxing time of things. Lovely, I'm glad. So, thank you for all your uh, messages on education. Now, I know Ed and Mark, it's one you were particularly worried about, and you made the point at the start of the podcast. I'm worried about talking about this because you usually just end up getting a load of grief. Have you had a look through the messages? Do you feel like you've been vindicated? Well, I have to say, I'm really pleased. Um, like, So we got a tweet from the lovely Caroline Brister, and she said, I might just start making people listen to John Richardson and the Future Notes in Education before trying to have a conversation with me because it encapsulates why I work in education, why I scream with frustration at education, and why I still have hope that education could be so much better. And she's got a little gif uh, underneath of somebody saying, preach, which is all very nice. And um, that was the general tone of the feedback, which was great because it is such a divisive topic. But gives me great hope that there is indeed a conversation we can be having which doesn't involve throwing shit at each other. I uh, I was drawn to an email from a guy called Tim who is uh, setting up in my hometown of Lancaster a school that uh, a new school that he hopes will address a lot of the points we talk about. As a teacher of 17 years, uh, I enjoyed listening to the podcast and it was compelling for that reason. So um, he, he invites us to get involved. I'll certainly have a look. Um, I'm always for doing things in and around Lancaster. I suspect in terms of driving your project forward, you probably benefit more from having Mark and Ed on board than me but you know if you're looking for some sarcasm on your journey <laughs> it is an excuse that. for all of us to go to Lancaster though isn't it where there are fantastic pubs there are I'm glad you know that there are some fantastic pubs and some good breweries now mm, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, places to drink Lancaster uh and a new listener a new a new country the Netherlands so uh we have an email that says um Hello to you, John, in the future notch. Uh, I'm loving the podcast <laughs> and particularly looking forward to the action, given my emails. Uh, I'll take it upon myself to get the whole of the Netherlands listening to the podcast. So cheers for that and uh, hope to see you soon in the Netherlands. That's from the Netherlands. That's Apple. <laughs> How the Never- fuck uh, do you do it? How do you do it? <laughs> take it upon myself. Somebody did uh, describe uh, John in the future notch. It's like knowledge porn. Now you said like a cartoon character. You've morphed into a sort of New York cop. Yeah. It's been a moida. It's a bit so kind of it. It's like a lush goldfinger. Your plans for world domination have gone sadly <laughs> astray. 
That's very good. That's lovely. So anyway, thank you for all. Uh, thanks for all your emails. If you listen in a country that you want me to defame by impersonating <laughs> an accent, please get in touch. And in fact, on any topic, uh, you can get in touch. And here's how. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Before we get started, John, last week... Ed sang a song. Yes. You forced me to sort of sing a song at the end. And yet, yes. you, and yet you yourself avoided any kind of vocal duties in that manner. No, that's true. But then I think I think in many ways, the questions I ask and the, the things I bring to this podcast are a music of their own, don't you think? I know. I think you need to sing a song. <laughs> um, you don't get off well, the hook that easily, Richard. Yeah. Let's see how we go on. And possibly I'll sing you a song at the end. How's that? Excellent. I look forward to that. So um, we'll move on to travel. I I should point out, I put the question out on my Twitter feed. There is at J and the F, which is the show-specific Twitter feed. Uh, I put the question out on my Twitter feed. So this is not representative of the listeners of this podcast, this question. It's more representative of the people who follow me on Twitter. But um, what's the worst place you've ever had a shit whilst traveling? <laughs> well, I think this is, but this illustrates one of those key points about travel, though, John, which is everyone's interested in Schadenfreude. You know, no one wants to hear about your blissful fortnight sipping cocktails by the infinity pool. They want to hear about the traumatic toilet visit you had in some remote <laughs> outpost, you know, and how horrific and horrendous it was. We don't want to hear about the good stuff. We want to hear the scatological experiences of horrible Schadenfreude. I mean, I've got, I've got two good ones. One is... <laughs> you haven't kept them. <laughs> well, obviously, because I mean, I went around the world without flying. So I mean, I got a lot of uh, traumatic toilet experiences, but these are quite... I think both of these are quite memorable. One was in Mongolia, staying in a yurt in the middle of the Gobi Plateau, where there was literally a featureless flat landscape, as far as the eye can see. Uh, you know, you arrive at the yurt and you say to the Mongolian guy, where do you go to the toilet? And the guy just sort of sweeps his hand across the landscape and sort of says, you know, pick your spot. <laughs> so you soon learn what constitutes a polite distance as you sort of walk away from this yurt and you keep turning around and people can still see you. You go, is this far enough? I don't know. It's 200 meters far enough. And then the other one was actually in Phnom Penh in Cambodia in a kind of stilt house, which went over out over a lake. Uh, and as you used the loo, there were all these catfish that immediately came like rolling in the water underneath the toilet and basically ate what you'd just given them. Uh, oh. and, then you went, and, and then you went out for dinner in the evening and then you ate catfish curry. And it was oh. like, uh, you go, hang on, this this is oh. not this is not a food web. This is a food loop, and there's only two things in it: <laughs> me and the catfish. <laughs> I still think, even eating the catfish, you have the second worst deal in that symbiotic relationship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The catfish tasted great. Scatfish curry. Curry. <laughs> Mark, I don't know why anybody would remember that stuff. If I've had a really traumatic toilet experience it's something i immediately consign to not remembering well then let me flip the question what's the best shit you've ever had <laughs> <I was traveling. laughs> 
Well, I mean, a Japanese techno toilet. I was going to say it's got to be Japan, hasn't it? No, sure. no question. I mean, it's like Billy Connolly once said, never trust a man who when left alone in a room with a tea cozy doesn't try it on. And the same applies to the Japanese techno toilet. You know, you sit there and you've got that control panel of mm-hmm. eight to 10 different options and you just, you want to press them all. And, you know, let's just say when you, when you press the female douche button as a man, it's surprisingly refreshing. <laughs> I love the way that every time John's trying to ask me a question about going to the toilet, you've just leapt in there, Ed. And I think that says a lot about the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember your best shit either? I always think the best one is the one that you really need to do. That's always just a great relief. I just The, the everyday joy of, of release, I think, is enough for me. I, th- I think in a way that was more profound. That's the best shit you've ever had, the last one, because what was the alternative? <laughs> Um, this is regular listeners will, will have noted there a little barb at Mark there when Ed said in my book, um, this is really, this is your chance to shine Ed because Mark has mentioned his books on many occasions. You have written a book on travel and specifically traveling without flying. That's right. That's correct. My, my one and only book is called only planet, a flight free adventure around the world. Perhaps you are best place to go first. I just, I just wanted to mention that, that I've written two books. (laughs) <laughs> I think you have. And uh, um, um, both of them are travelogues. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, off um, you go, Ed. Off you go. You... No, no, you're now, you're now two one up, so you can go first um, in this week's first round, which is always how fucked are we? So we're looking at systems of travel. We're obviously looking at this point where, as I said earlier, under lockdown, people thinking more about perhaps the travel they've done, the travel they aspire to, why they travel, what they miss from travel. So that's what we're discussing this week. Seems like a lighthearted, fun topic. We've had some shitty banter. Uh, this is always the part where Mark and Ed managed to depress me to the point where uh, I don't want to talk anymore. So it's uh, How Fucked Are We? This week, our guest is a Loch Lomond 12-year-old single malt uh, standing by to counter any damage you might do. Uh, so, Mark, you were going to go second, but you're now going first because you've written two travelogues, as you said yourself. So talk to me about how fucked the current system of travel is. Well, it is massively unsustainable. That's the big problem with it. So the reason that we supposedly travel, which is to see the world and enjoy the world, is largely the thing that is destroying it. And I think, Ed will correct me if I'm wrong, that travel is, I think, 10% of the world's GDP. But it's probably, if you're counting all the emissions and the flying and all that that goes with it and the damage that all these people traveling to beauty spots does, it contributes to far more than 10% of the environmental degradation. So so it's a kind of fundamental devil's sort of handshake. And we're we're trying to celebrate the world we live in and see more of it. But by doing so, we're, we're destroying the thing we love. And I think we have to be clear that what we're talking about here is not your average family who goes on a holiday once a year. That's not the problem. The problem is the over-travel of corporate use and the super-rich kind of treating the world as a playground. I'm glad to have the figures on um, the percentage of because I've had that exact conversation with a friend who wanted to fly somewhere for a break to get drunk and quoted those stats on travel is only X percent of global emissions. And now I've got those stats to back him up. So actually, well, that's still only 1% of people in this country taking 20% of the flights. So you're part of the problem, mate. And then that should be another friend ticked off the list. (laughs) Right, over to you, Ed. Uh, Unsustainable is the headline from uh, Mark. I think the first thing to remind ourselves, John, is that travel is basically a good thing. You know, it's supposed to be about broadening our horizons, reducing our prejudice, allowing us to experience culture, you know, curiosity, exploration and adventure. 
And the trouble is that's not really what it represents a lot of these days. And as Mark was saying, you know, it's disproportionately destroying the very thing it sets out to enjoy in the first place. And I think we've seen this kind of astronomical growth. I mean, essentially, you know, we've got industrial tourism, which has turned little fishing villages like Benidorm, you know, tiny little sleepy towns to four million tourists a year. Leo Hickman, in his book, The Final Call, which is a brilliant sort of dissection of the challenge of tourism, said, you know, tourism almost strips places. It's almost like army ants. Uh, it starts with the the backpackers and it ends with the package holidays. And all of those lead to this kind of spiral to the bottom. Actually, it's become a numbers game where tourist destinations are always trying to increase the numbers of visitors and increase the amount of money they spend. But what's tending to happen is you get people then spending less time, spending less money, but increasing uh, the impact that they have. And then you look at things like cruise ships, where when they dock in a particular port, the the emissions that are coming out of their funnels, the equivalent of 100,000 cars or more on the road. We've got all of the pointless business travel that we do uh, that has been getting thrown into kind of ridiculous light now that we've all been locked down and we've stopped traveling. And all of the business people I know who I've, and I used to travel a lot, as did Mark, as did you, I'm sure. Uh, and we're all looking at each other going, that was insane what we were doing before. You know, we were literally traveling pointlessly, relentlessly all the time. And then also you see things like Airbnb, which, you know, one critic described as an engine that eats cities, where the original ethos of what Airbnb was supposed to be about, which was real people welcoming you into their real home. It then just becomes another holiday letting site uh, and it starts to hollow out cities, displacing the local residents and creating this kind of lucrative, highly commercialized you know, rental market, uh, which actually, again, is sort of hollowing out the very life and soul of the destination you go to visit. And Paris and Barcelona have had to put in extreme controls to try and mitigate that. So, I mean, I think in essence, you know, we are pretty fucked in terms of uh, the way that tourism has gone out of control. And even in the UK, if you look at the amount of money that Brits spend abroad versus incoming tourists spending in the UK, there's about an £18 billion a year tourist deficit. So we spend £18 billion a year more abroad than incoming tourists spend here, which is about a fifth of the NHS budget, to put that in context. So it's also a huge drain on the economy. And because it's got so big, of course, the industry employs about 120 million people. So they're also relying on this rapacious industry for their livelihoods as well. So that causes a, another problem additionally. And a lot of those people are really feeling it at the moment. Well, the other thing to mention here is like the travel industry does not exist right now. Uh, you know, there's literally virtually no tourists on the entire planet. I had the rather weird privilege of writing a report recently about the future of transformational travel, you know, travel which actually might change us as people get us to shift our identity, our values, our behaviours for a major European city. And when I started writing the report in March, at the start of March, it was all quite rosy. And then by the end of the month, when I was handing the report in, you know, the entire industry had imploded and been burnt to the ground. And so I had to completely pivot my report. And the point we were making in that is actually an example that Mark referenced in episode one, which is like, literally, this industry is burnt to the ground. So we actually have an opportunity to rebuild the house of our dreams of tourism rather than just rapidly rebuild the same house we had before, which was highly problematic. 
And a lot of the problems we've talked about on this podcast can be solved actually often by relocalizing things and keeping money in the economy, whether that's with energy or whether that's with food. And it might also be with the way we move about as well. I love the way you sort of tag teamed there. You know, it started off, uh, you were in the different corners trying to depress me. And then there was just a lovely back and forth by the end. You know, a real, I was down on the canvas and you would sort of, one of you would climb the ropes, the other would tag in, come in with a, a lovely elbow to the solar plexus. Um, the winner is uh, Ed this week for uh, hey. two things. One, the image of Benidorm as a sleepy fishing village, which I'd, I'd never even thought of in my life, having visited Benidorm. And that <laughs> depressed me greatly, the idea that that's what's lying underneath that bloated corpse is actually a lovely little fishing harbour. Uh, and also the the criticism of Airbnb, which was, I mean, you couldn't have knifed me deeper. I love Airbnb. I like to travel. I like to be on my own when I do it. So Airbnb is right up my street. And I didn't realize it was such a damaging thing. So for the personal, uh, you win it. Uh, broadly, how have we got to this point then where you're both saying the same thing, which is that travel fundamentally is a is a good thing for society and individuals but the system is unsustainable and is killing the planet that we are traveling to see how has that happened i think it comes down to the fact that when something is desirable like travel like broadening the mind somebody else will try and commercialize it and then the measures of what's successful change so we don't measure successful travel on how enlightened we are or how our prejudice has been challenged and reduced or whatever. It's now measured on how many flights can we sell? How can we get more people into these hotels? What is, what's the profit margin? So I think what's happened is we've taken a, a human activity, as we often do, something that's joyous, and we've turned it into a commercial enterprise. And therefore, the measure is not human enlightenment. It is profit. Yeah, exactly. I think it's that industrial approach to tourism. It serves capital and finance, not actually the communities or even the tourists themselves. And I think there's also this this notion, again, which is very clear in lockdown, this idea of hypermobility, where we've we've sort of confused the gifted privilege of travel with it being a given right. Uh, and everyone thinks they should be able to go wherever they want, whenever they want, however often they want, and sort of hang the collective consequences, which, is, which has been the sort of slightly selfish individualistic growth around aviation. And I think aviation sort of is a very complex aspect of this. And I did my book and my flight-free adventure because I was very worried about the idea of the the growth of flying in a way that was going to potentially drive some one of the biggest components uh, of global climate change. Now, it's only 3% of global carbon, but the key thing is it's actually a massively carbon-intensive thing you can do and probably the most carbon-intensive discretionary thing you can personally do. People sort of use the 3% of global carbon as an excuse for saying, well, actually, it's not consequential. But it is if you're a Brit, because actually we're a bunch of binge flyers. You know, we take 130 million flights a year, which is the third most flying nation in the world after China and the US. And worse than that, it's not just, you know, your hardworking British family going off for their one annual holiday in the sun. It's actually about 75% of flights are taken by 15% of the population. And it gets worse, actually. You know, it's about 1% of people take 20% of all flights. Half the country doesn't fly in any one year. So 
but people often sell this or the business world will tell you that this is some great egalitarian opening up of access to aviation. And that's actually a real lie. It's actually a very small proportion of people flying a shed load. And I, and I think that's really unfair because mm-hmm. that's what's causing the demand for the third runway at Heathrow. So it's not something which is open uh, or, or, or being opened up to everyone. And the other aspects that come from this, the other reason that flying is cheap is because we don't tax the fuel. So it gives a huge advantage to the industry over other modes of travel. Um, and so this is why you can buy yourself a £25 flight to, to Mallorca or to Ibiza or wherever, because you're not paying the full cost uh, of that particular trip. And the hypermobility then leaks back into this idea that we do these mini breaks, you know, and I think this has been the demand creation piece of the industry, which plays back to Mark's point about, you know, the industrialization of tourism is like, you know, the, the great British stag weekend always used to go to like Newcastle or Cardiff, you know, or, or Liverpool or London. We would inflict this wonderful cultural ritual on ourselves. <laughs> no one was sitting at home going, I really want to go to Tallinn. Now, Tallinn is a beautiful historic European city, as is as is Budapest. And I remember having a conversation with a guy who ran a hostel in Budapest. Uh, and he was saying when, when EasyJet opened up their route from London to Budapest, the Hungarians were really excited about all the cultural tourists they were going to get. They were going to come visit their opera and their art galleries and their museums uh, and their fantastic heritage and architecture. You know, and then what they actually got was Wayne's stag night with 24 blokes in named T-shirts descending on their bars and restaurants. So I think there is this demand creation piece, which has meant that we've treated it as I must have this immediately. This is about my individual gratification. And again, this commoditization uh, of travel. And I think the final thing, you know, if I haven't really upset you enough yet, John, is... Yeah, that was brutal, I have to say. That was that was big. The so all-inclusive you know. holiday, you know, the all-inclusive holiday, which is perhaps the epitome of consumer culture, because it flies in exactly the face of everything that travel is supposed to do, which is tackle the prejudice, broaden the horizons, meet different people, play in different cultures. And actually the all-inclusive holiday where you basically fly into a place and then secure yourself in the compound is the epitome of the monocultural experience. It's about isolation. It's vertically integrated. It's all owned by the same company. Everyone eats and drinks more to get their money's worth. It's full of waste and indulgence. And the worst thing is it has very little benefit to the local community bar the few staff who might be employed because most of the money is not actually recycled in that community. And almost a quarter of holidays now are all inclusives. And, you know, and I think that represents the worst edge of the commoditization of travel. See, what, what's difficult about this one is I think when we've spoken about things in the past, we've talked about systems where actually nobody's happy. So I remember when we talked about work, we talk about why the system's the way it is. And you say, well, actually, and it doesn't benefit any of us because most people aren't happy in their work. And most people don't feel fulfilled. And I mean, what what you're saying here, everything there was devastatingly true, but there's no question those those families going on those holidays and Wayne Stag do, they're having a great time. So of course. The conversation is less about, you know, let's make this better for everyone. And it feels like this is one where we're saying, you have to just stop doing this thing you enjoy because it's really damaging. And, and that's like any complex problem. I mean, I've just been working on a program this week with a friend of mine, Kate Simpson, who runs an organization called Wasafiri, and she specializes in working on complex problems. And the first thing she always says is like, the reason a problem is complex is because solving it means tackling the issue that it works for someone. You know, actually someone it really works for. And in the context of travel, it, it is working. It is working for the tourists, as you say, in some way. It's certainly working for the the companies that are providing the hotels. 
what it's not working for generally. And I, unfortunately, I think this is where we get into the real Gordian knot of travel is in one way, it's argued that this is a vital source of foreign exchange uh, and a great way for communities to raise themselves up on tourist income. But at the same time, the trickle of revenue that actually goes to locals from the development of tourism is usually minuscule. So why why is there the deficit within this country? Why are we spending so much more going on holiday than we're making from people? Because I think Britain is a sort of broadly, it's one of the top places to travel in the world isn't it it is and that, it's, it's absolutely madness because you know britain is often regarded as the number one or number two place to go because it's just so rich with you know great cosmopolitan cities but also you know this amazing rich heritage castles and then we've got great scenery in scotland i mean you know, actually britain's one of the best places to go anywhere and, and often people haven't seen that before they want to twang themselves abroad i remember being sat outside a bar in glasgow and i was just about to get on the sleeper train back to london i had my rucksack next to me and the glaswegian barmaid came out to collect the glasses and just said oh that's a good rucksack you know would you recommend it my boyfriend and i are going to go traveling to new zealand I jokingly said, you know, I said, oh, you go to New Zealand, lovely. I said, have you been up the West Coast? And she was like, no. Her and her boyfriend were going to the other side of the world to visit New Zealand, having not travelled up the West Coast of Scotland, which is also absolutely stunning. Uh, And it's just, I think it's that mindset of not wanting to see what's right under your very nose. Maybe that's partly the escapism and distance thing that people want to have. But I, hmm. I do think people should try and explore the incredible beauty and, and wonderful landscape we have around ourselves uh, before necessarily going and inflicting themselves on, on other parts of the world. There is a sense, isn't there, that if if that couple were you know young and looking to have an experience, and I'm not denying they couldn't have that on the West Coast, but if someone would say to them, what do you do this summer? And they said, we just drove to the coast. There's so much implied sort of negativity around that of, well, why didn't you do more than that? Why did you not want to reach further? That is, that's a real mind shift for people. It's why I admire my neighbours, because they don't do that. They have the same holiday every year and they love it. And it's in the UK. My dad always says the same, you know, why do I need to go anywhere else? I've got everything I need here. But there are very few people who feel like that. And actually, it's further than that. It's it's seen as a negative thing to not want to see the furthest reaches of the planet. Oh, and I, I, I totally agree. And I think... You know, it's very hard to remember that's only happened very recently. You know, my parents actually met working on cruise ships back in the 60s. Aviation wasn't accessible to them, uh, their generation. It was too expensive and it was quite limited. But these days, you can get a one-way or a return flight to New Zealand for a few hundred quid. It's within most people's capacity. And I think that's partly what's driven the desire to go further and further afield. And I think that's fine. I mean, that's one of the reasons, again, I did my trip was saying... You know, traveling distance is, is not a problem. But, you know, once you cross the channel, you know, you're joined to a landmass that can take you all the way to Singapore, you know, or Vladivostok, if that's your flavor. We're part of the Eurasian continent, which means you can do amazing bus and train travel for literally thousands of miles without having to go anywhere near an airport. Uh, and that's where I think the real adventure lies. I don't think there's any adventure uh, in twanging yourself in an aluminium sausage to the other side of the planet. Anyone could do that, and anyone could do that in 24 hours. But, but you know, not everyone wants an adventure, though, do they? I, 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 there's holidays where I want an adventure, but as as the father of a three-year-old who sometimes is tired, sometimes I just want to be somewhere hot where I can have a swim every day and someone cooks my breakfast for me. 
Well, that's true. And about in which case, it still doesn't mean you have to fly to New Zealand. You know, no. uh, I want to say I'm not. I don't want to disrespect our New Zealand listeners because you know the three of them. Yeah, will, well, get, we've got shitloads of them. We're up to four now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they might get upset. I'm saying don't, don't lose go. them. <laughs> and I'm not saying don't go to New Zealand at all. I mean, I think the, the, the other point here is actually if we're going to go somewhere like New Zealand, it should be the trip of a lifetime. Yeah, mm. I, I gave I gave a talk to the New Zealand Tourist Authority once, where they were talking about their plan being to double the numbers. And I said, "Well, no, actually, you, sh- you should be doing the opposite of that. You should be halving the numbers and doubling the duration of the stay and the duration of the spend, because the only business which benefits from doubling the numbers really is is Air New Zealand." But, you know, what you want is for people to spend longer in your country, to, to travel like a local, to get involved in their local culture and to, and to spend more money while they're there. And, and that's done by making it the trip of a lifetime that you might only do once, uh, but you might make that huge carbon expenditure to go for that month long trip. Uh, well, I have never been to New Zealand. I was planning to go, but obviously now, thanks to this conversation, I'll cross that off the list. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark, have you been to New Zealand? Did it change your life? I have been to New Zealand when I was uh, writing my uh, first book. Clang! Um, <laughs> but actually, uh, talking of the dream holiday destinations, in that same book, I did go to what is perhaps the most iconic holiday destination in the world, which was the Maldives. And the reason I went there was to attend an underwater cabinet meeting being held by the then president, Mohammed Nasheed. And the reason they were doing it underwater was, you know, it's kind of a PR stunt, but to draw attention to climate change, because the Maldives just represents you know, everything we're talking about when it comes to tourism and its problems. I mean, the the Maldivian economy is totally dependent on tourism, but it's a very low-lying set of islands, so they're worried about sea level rise. The climate change has also started to affect their fishing industry, which is their other main industry. Um, but also, the resorts are on these very, very posh islands that are usually owned or rented by foreign uh, corporations, where very rich people fly in and have this wonderful kind of Epicurean sort of holiday, and a very little of the money actually flows to the residents of the nation. So the Maldives is kind of this this microcosm of everything we've been talking about. And how did, uh, I don't want to push you for changes, but how does a small island nation, which by definition has these rich people who own large swathes of it, other than saying, don't come here, how, how do you start redressing that system? Well, what Nasheed was doing brilliantly, because, you know, he had a kind of a background in PR, was saying, you know, we can't change everything. But what he did do at that point uh, was set the Maldives on a road to carbon neutrality as a nation. And the point was, if us as a, as a small nation where most of the money is flowing out, the economy can do it, you've got no excuse for anybody else. Um, so he always used to say this, you know, this thing said, look, if the Maldives go, we're like the canary in the coal mine. We're warning everybody else. He used to say, you know, look, I don't care what you think about this economically. You're not going to argue with the laws of physics. You cannot change the laws of physics. <laughs> but I think it's sort of, there's something also here about this sort of cult of speed versus the quality of experience. We always feel like we want to get everywhere faster, you know, and I understand that when holiday times are limited, people going, you know, we don't ever see the journey as part of the experience. It's very yeah. much a sort of transit piece, you know. I just want to get there. I just want to yeah. get there. I'm reminded of a story that Rory Sutherland, who works for Ogilvy and Mather and I sometimes have dealings with, told me about um, the Eurostar. And he was saying, you know, the Eurostar, they spent something like, I don't know, 150 million pounds on shaving something like 50 minutes off the time from London to Paris. And he said, for that money, you could have employed supermodels of both sexes, wandering up and down the carriages, handing out champagne for free 
for about 15 years and everybody would have wanted the trip to go slower. <laughs> so the point is like, we see the travelers are kind of like, oh, just something I've got to do to get there. And actually, I think if we started to think of travel as part of the holiday, but the commoditization of it, the squeezing out of, of any kind of joy because the joy is actually expensive is really annoying. I mean, one of the things I hate about airports um, is, you know, you think about an airport, right? You've got this place where people from every single nationality are probably in this in this room together, stuck there for two or three hours while they're, while they're changing flights or whatever or waiting for their flight to depart. You've got this incredible multicultural melting pot. And what do airports do? The world over, it doesn't matter where you go. They basically say, welcome to our country. Would you like some M&Ms? And it's just like, what the fuck's going on there? How could you have this wonderful sort of building where you've got all these people and not design it to create, you know, a multicultural serendipity engine where we'd all be enriched by part of the travel. And yet most people would regard the airport as pretty much the worst bit of it, where it's this massive lost opportunity for understanding and joy. I have another question on flying then, and then uh, we'll move on to the sort of situation. I mean, right in the here and now, because... I think a lot of the points have been made about traveling for holidays and things. What about business travel? Are we at a point in the world where, I'll be honest, I had a point this year where I was offered a show in America that I turned down. It was a show about the environment and the future. I turned it down because of the impact of flying to America to make a show about saving the world. And then gradually I was assured that uh, the carbon would be offset and that the strand of the show was about the impact of the journey and things. And the turning point was I did a show with another comic who I won't name in, in the process of umming and ahhing about whether I should do this show. And I genuinely believed that the show would have an impact where the reach of the show to have a beneficial impact on the way we do certain things would justify the travel to me. I spoke to a comic who was flying the next day, literally to the other side of the planet, to retake one scene for a film to then fly back and do some gigs here and then go to America. And I had an absolute, it's the weakest point of any of us when you just go, oh, well, what's it fucking matter what I'm doing then? Hmm. Uh, surely we're at a point where those things just don't need to happen anymore, do they? For for entertainment, for business, we have everybody in the country now is seeing their families on Zoom, never mind conducting their businesses. So how much business travel will be reduced? Because when you do fly, that's, you know, the people upstairs in the seats that, you know, they've basically got an entire hotel room to themselves. I imagine a lot of them are traveling for business. Is that necessary or is that just a system that wants to justify itself by saying, well, look how important this meeting is because I'm flying first class to New York? I think that's the bubble that's burst right now. You know, I, I was having a conversation with some consultants last week and they were saying that there was the myth of, you know, client service that you know, meant you had to be there in the flesh to run the workshop. You had to fly to New York for the half day session. You had to press the flesh. You had to do it face to face. And one of my colleagues, Matt, just said to me, he goes, he goes, we just burst that bubble. You know, as we know, that doesn't have to happen now. We go as we're running exactly the same effectiveness of the creativity of the session, but without having to splurge the carbon to go back and forth. And also, I think work travel is glamorous at a certain age. And uh, when you first start, you go, oh, this is amazing. I'm so important. I'm flying all over the place to go and run my sessions. And then, you know, within a few years, especially when you've got young family, it just becomes a complete pain in the neck and people don't enjoy it. So I think I don't think business travel is going to bounce back either in terms of, you know, aviation or even the commute for that matter. Mm. I mean, I think the commute is massively in question in terms of the kind of the daft, daft impacts and stresses that that's created for us. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the cost on businesses, when you think about it, if you've got a meeting and you need to fly four people into it, you know, that's four flights all that time. Yeah. And they're not performing at their best because they're probably, you know, three of them are outside of their time zone. You can get them all on a Zoom and it's cost you almost nothing. So the, I think businesses are, are going to go, what, what were we doing? And I think that's uh, that's a really good thing. I don't know if you found it as well when you're doing Zoom drinks, because obviously now you've got Zoom Plus or whatever it is, oh, John. absolutely. Seven-hour sessions. Yeah. The, you know, it used to be if you went out drinking, you'd have the faff of having to get home. Yes. And what I find now is I can drink with mates with my pyjama bottoms already on. I can be drunk and I can be in bed half a minute later. I recorded my first TV show last night on lockdown, so I had a guy in full... Uh, you know, face mask came to set the camera up in the dock and I recorded the show. And towards the end, I started to get that feeling of fucking hell, I'm still going to get home. I'm not going to have time to have a couple of drinks afterwards. And then I suddenly realized I'm already home. The minute this ends, <laughs> I can just be pissed and in my own bed within half an hour. It is it is changing things. And I think you're right. And I think that brings us probably nicely on into the, the situation right as it is now. How much is the current situation by definition, going to change the world of travel inherently? What is going to change about travel just because of the situation we're in now? Well, I mean, I think, as I said, I think we're going to see an enormous reset here. In the short term, I don't think we're going to be traveling much at all. That's for a number of different reasons. But, you know, primarily because the virus will mean it's going to be very difficult to travel. It's going to be very difficult to get travel insurance to cover COVID. Um, We may see low virus nations that offer low risk travel where you know you can almost declare red or green zones where there may be low incidence of virus but i still think the kind of the responsibilities around incubation and self-isolation and quarantine before we get reliable and quick antibody or immunity tests are going to mean that you know it might take you you might arrive in your destination you might have to self-isolate for two weeks on arrival um, and then you can hang out for a bit. But then if you come home again, you might have to self-isolate for two weeks at the other end, mm. which means, you know, traveling for any short period of time is obviously impossible. So I think it's a big question about whether we will be able to travel at all, which brings us back to the UK travel piece. I imagine a lot of our travel is going to be at home. And that may actually be uh, a beautiful and wonderful thing for people to explore, you know, the land that they're attached to. Uh, in a way they might never have done. And I've, you know, I've been lucky in my life. I went to uni in Wales. I grew up in Norfolk. I did my master's up in Scotland. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky to travel and live all over the British Isles. And I still think it is one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been. And, you know, and I've, and I've been right around the world. My son is named after a quote about travel. Mm. Ah, I always wondered where Megabus came from. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's such an so anyway, my son's name, uh, Emmett, is actually, uh, and he's named after, well, he's named after two things. He's named after Dr. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future, because obviously as a futurist, we have to name our children after people from movies that vaguely have something to do with the future. But actually, my wife suggested the name because she'd seen a quote from the um, photographer Emmett Goin. Uh, he's, and he spent all his life traveling around the world taking photographs. And then he said, uh, I was going around the world searching for an interesting place when I realized that the place I was in was already interesting. And that desire to go and find something exciting elsewhere when actually the exciting thing is probably right in front of you. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. I think travel is a state of mind, you know, and actually one of the things that lockdown has been doing 
is perhaps encouraging us to embark on travel as a philosophical experiment in some ways, whereby you could recreate or revisit your own travel experiences, either by pulling out the photos or to retelling the stories of your own travel. Um, and people love, you know, as I said right at the beginning, people love the schadenfreude uh, of great travel stories. So we can relive those experiences. We often don't take those memories out of our memory banks and give them a, a polish and have a look at them in, in in the same way that they are actually the souvenirs rather than the snowstorm globe that you might have on your mantelpiece. Um, your travel memories are exactly that same type of beautiful thing that you should be able to go back to and, and revisit. Uh, and I think we're going to have to get creative. I was involved in a project a few years ago called World in London, which was all about global holidays in the capital. And that was all about celebrating London's incredible multiculturalism. It's like, well, actually, we've got most of the world here. You know, there's 300 languages spoken in London. And our, our vision was to say, OK, on Tuesday, I'm going to go and have a day in China. And we'd go and find a, a Chinese art exhibition that was on. We'd see if there was a Chinese musician playing. We'd go to a Chinese restaurant. You know, you could do the same thing in Jamaica, Brazil, India. Uh, and the whole point was, you know, you could get a lot of that adventurous cultural immersion in the city in which you lived. But someone else described this the other day as saying, actually, you could take a street view city break. <laughs> you know, you can actually just go on Google now uh, and you could actually sit down with a nice bottle of, you know, a bottle of French wine. You could walk the streets of Paris and pretend, you know, find yourself a nice cafe with a nice view. Or you could go and actually just have a drink under the Eiffel Tower, you know. And I think we can be a bit more playful and creative about how we have some of these these travel experiences while actually the industry is going to be in lockdown for a lot longer than we might just be physically in our homes. I think fundamentally though, that sounds shit, Ed. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I'm so glad you said it. But... <laughs> I mean, and I th but I think it comes back to your earlier point is that travel, we should value travel more. So because we've become so used to being able to go wherever we want, mm. we value it less. Mm. And actually I do want to go to Paris and I do want to sit in that cafe and I do want to look at the Eiffel Tower and drink a nice glass of red wine or whatever, but I want it to be special. And um, at the moment, travel has become unspecial because it's so ubiquitous. So hopefully, when we do finally get back to traveling more again, we will rediscover what it was all about in the first place, which is, you know, having those once in a lifetime trips or really engaging with a different culture because that's what it was all about rather than what we got to which as you say was the commoditization where we basically you know take ourselves somewhere and we don't change at all yeah and i think i mean i think that was what i learned on the trip it was it was about savoring the experience you know i mean it was the metaphor i used to use is saying you know travel is it's like a, a a meal you know you can either stuff a burger in your face and that's very nice to do very occasionally um, or you can, you know, buy all the ingredients from a market and carefully cook a beautiful meal at home. The mini break was very much the sort of fast food experience. And if you went by plane, I used to describe that as the deep fried Mars bar, you know, something which, you know, is quite amazing. But, you know, just don't do it every day or certainly not every week. Um, and so there's something there's something beautiful about the slow travel which is also perhaps what we might do if we want to have the savouring, as you said, where the journey is part of the reward. You know, it is about the transition of landscape, culture, people, language and cuisine. And it's it's enjoying your movement through the world, you know, not to pass through it like a bad oyster, but to actually get to get somewhere uh, and, and enjoy the transition. I mean, I used to joke, you know, you have to hope the journey is a reward if you're going to go around the world without flying because I started out in Brixton and I ended up in Brixton and Brixton's lovely, but it's probably not worth going all the way around the world to get to. 
How long did it take you? Uh, 381 days. And was that... But I wasn't rushing. No, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, how, how much of that pace is the forced, you know, well, I better move on, and how much of it is, uh, well, I could have actually stayed there for, you know, two months. Oh, but you feel that all the time. I think there's there is something about that type of experience where, you know, you're living out of your bag. Your home actually becomes kind of and I don't mean in a cliched way but your home becomes your heart it's actually that's your grounding because after 13 months on the road you find yourself having been through dozens of places going oh I think I could live here I think I think I could stay here um and falling in love with different places all the time there's something very very delicious about the sensuous seduction of slow travel uh, which is not like a a knee trembler behind the bike sheds you know it's a it's it's a beautiful thing it's a, it's a romantic way to travel. I think the state. Did you say knee trembling <laughs> behind the bike sheds? I did. And the the state of Britain's bike sheds at the moment tells you everything you need to know about how much you know cycling's going on. Cities built around cars. You know you can see right through the rusted corrugated iron of the bike sheds now, so they don't even provide any cover. So everyone's watching you get your knee trembled. Yeah, I'm all for slow travel, particularly Ed doing it, because I have to tell you that was 381 days that were the happiest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I I did this trip before I met Mark, I have to say. And even then I was happy that you weren't around. (laughs) He was just talking about the effect on GDP. Yeah. (laughs) I read this lovely story about a British couple, uh, Michael and Jackie Burden, who went from Devon to Cumbria on their freedom passes, you know, so they did 24 different local buses to cover the 500 miles. And I I just think there's something sort of fantastic about that sort of slightly random exploration and the serendipity of what happens to you on journeys like that, because that's where your travel stories come from. They tend to come from the places in between, you know, so they don't come from your fortnight by the infinity pool sipping cocktails. No, but I think those are different holidays and what, because I think the travel you're talking about, I mean, for, for most people I know, those trips are once in a lifetime, the sort of, you know, the the Thailand or the New Zealand or Peru or wherever it might be. Those are once in a lifetime that the damage, I guess, for most of us is that trip that is, it's not about exploration and it's not about, I mean, you mentioned the commute. The reality for most people is most of their time traveling is across the city they live in to drop the kids off, get to work, exactly the same on the way back. Mm. They'll probably do that four hours a day, five days a week. That's 20 hours a week just in your car. So you could be in New Zealand in whatever it is now, 22 hours. So there is that sense of, um, to go back to the thing you say every week about how everything is interconnected, it's a sort of unhappiness of I sit in my car in the rain for four hours every day, two hours to get to Costa Brava and get pissed in the sun for a week, justifies all that so i get back and i think well the reason i'm doing this awful thing is because then i can have that without getting sort of too alan de botton i mean that's the thing you go on holiday you're still on holiday with yourself mm, tell uh, me about which it. is probably <laughs> oh. which is probably why when you get there you, you then get drunk cyprus 2014 jesus <laughs> two weeks on my own fucking nightmare <laughs> and this is the thing is like Travel is is a form of escapism in some ways, but you will always take yourself with you. Uh, and so I think the way we perhaps should be exploring the travel we do should be something which touches the heart a little bit more rather than just satisfies the, the gut or the craving. So let's move on then. Uh, that's a natural pathway into the how do we unfuck ourselves. The future of travel, I guess, based on now and a more sustainable model. Where do you see that, both of you? So there's a number of different things. I mean, I think 
one of the ways that we might rebuild here, you know, and one of the ways we might moderate the demand on on aviation, for example, to make it fairer, is something called a frequent flyer levy, uh, which basically gives everyone one tax-free flight per year. Uh, and then for every subsequent flight you take, you pay an additional tax. So it means that people who are going abroad once a year on holiday wouldn't pay any tax on their flight. And the minute that everyone pays their passenger duty. But if you're flying 10 times a year to your second home in Tuscany, then that's going to hit you a little bit harder. Now, maybe you can afford that, but it also should disincentivize some of the binge flying behaviors that we see going on at the moment. Um, and I think the key thing, actually, and you sort of touched on it, John, in terms of the time piece, is about making time. I think it's about traveling less and traveling for longer. It's finding these trips of a lifetime that you really want to do. So it's it's identifying, you know, that dream trip and perhaps saving for it. But, you know, not going on four flight-based holidays a year, but maybe finding that trip you want to do every other year that you're really going to love and save up for. So you're traveling less and traveling for longer. But also the work that I was doing with this European city was about understanding tourism as a resource, so, you know, it's not about a numbers game, as Mark was talking about earlier, but it is about what is the tourism that is then in service to the global transformation we need? So if we need a transition and a transformation to a, a radically lower carbon, public transport based, walking and cycling, rewilded, relocalized world, then what forms of travel and tourism will actually support and cultivate and nurture the birth of that world? and the rebirth of that world. And I think that's where we start to have potentially radical effect because the, the other types of tourism are unfortunately fueling the world, which is going to drive us off the cliff. So not hydrogen planes then where we can all fly where we want and it doesn't matter. There will be technological innovation. You know, the question is always about timescales. I mean, we will get electric planes. There is no doubt about that. We will probably only get them on short haul flights for some time. But what is going to happen is that's not going to be happening within the next five to 10 years, probably. Uh, and we already have to make massive inroads in our carbon emissions in the next 10 years. You know, we've pretty much got to halve them um, in the next 10 to 20. So it, it does make things quite challenging. And I've had some fascinating conversations with people who work in the airlines about how you bridge that technology gap. Because the other thing is, you know, it's all very well if one airline uh, replaces all its planes with um, electric planes, but they'll just sell the other planes onto other people and they'll fly them elsewhere. So there'll be no sort of net gain. I absolutely think, you know, this has to be about less and savored and, and better, more satisfying and richer holiday experiences. And some of those might start at home and some of them may be abroad. We can also, as I say, uh, get to a lot of places in Europe within 24 hours by, by ferry and by train. Yeah, I think you know, if we're going to talk about how do we unfuck ourselves, we should actually um, think of travellers as a bit more like sex in that you'd rather have it less often than good than have it every day but a bit unsatisfying and drab. I mean, you're aware that now the biggest show on lockdown is normal people where um, I think they have sex for... Uh, 40 minutes across a six-hour series. I mean, that's too much for anyone, isn't it? We've only had sex for 10 minutes. I've already got one kid. So, you know, you've got to be careful. <laughs> so everybody's at home right now, and we're talking about, you know, all the travel we've been on. How many of us are now reaping the rewards of that by getting into the back of the drinks cabinet and pulling out the things that you haven't seen since that holiday to, mm. you know, and inventing yeah, some pretty beautiful. interesting cocktails? I mean, The quarantini. You know, the quarantini cocktail. 
it's whatever you've got in the cupboard. My my mate Rob Crossan, who's a travel writer, did actually I think he did a piece for the Telegraph, which was travels around my drinks cabinet, um, and he was doing it in yeah a wonderful evocative way of basically digging out all those sticky bottles of of, of rubbish that you bought, you know, some prune liqueur that was purchased <laughs> was purchased in duty free because he thought it was a good idea at the time because it tasted delicious when you drank it in the sun in the company of you know some lithe partner you'd met on the beach, uh, and then it tasted absolutely horrific when you're drinking it on a a, a wet Tuesday night in South London. (laughs) We have been doing a thing, actually, not about booze, because she's three, but with Elsie, we've uh, on lockdown Monday to Friday, we're trying to do travel in the sense that it's themed around a different country. So at breakfast, we draw the flag and she colours in the flag. And then we have meals from that country and we listen to music from that country every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something we've been able to do at home that's it's alleviated some of the tension. But I think that's a really beautiful thing, John. I think that's a, a absolutely fantastic and lovely thing to do. And I think, you know, that's what I was trying to talk about in terms of the sort of the street view city breaks and the kind of the world in London. It's like travel is, is as much about a state of mind as it is about anything else. And I think, you know, whilst we can hanker after the indulgence to get a suntan bottom um, and the Algarve, we can also get a lot of the joys of travel by actually just taking ourselves there in our hearts and minds. So a lot of the the how do we unfuck ourselves seems to be, this may be wording it unfairly, but onus on the individual to change the way that they look at and feel about travel with the exception of the frequent fly attacks which i liked and is is a question of i guess getting the right forward thinking mm. government in how much of this is about that is about just saying to people we have to think differently and how how much more difficult is that than just infrastructural things or some of the other things that we change oh no i think you can get incentives from right across the board john i mean so apart from the frequent fly level you could have the aviation fuel tax, as we touched on before, you know, when in my old business, we used to give slow travel days for employees, i.e. if you booked a European holiday by train instead of by plane, we would give you an extra day of annual leave in order to compensate for the supposed, you know, loss of travel time. What a great idea. So that was a kind of, you know, it was a nice incentive. And actually, there's an organization called Climate Perks, which is now promoting these type of business-orientated things. So companies can actually incentivize their employees to take the right types of, of holiday. And I think that the thing that sort of kind of does it for me is is when you see, and I think there are some interesting signs, you know, you, you are mourning your Airbnb piece and sad that Airbnb seems to be a bit of a monster. But actually, the CEO of Airbnb wrote to the employees last week because unfortunately they were making 25% of their workforce redundant. But what he said in the letter was actually quite profound, and it was a sad letter, but he was saying, as a business, we completely lost sight with our original purpose, which was to travel like a human being. As I said, it was supposed to be about real people, real homes, welcoming you in as an intimate guest. What was beautiful about what the kind of head of Airbnb wrote was he was saying, the world of travel has changed, and it's probably changed for a long time, and we don't quite know what world will be recreated as a result of what happens after this crisis. But what we know is that we have to get back in contact with our original purpose, which is to travel like a human, and that will be our guidance. And I think if large organizations like that, which have obviously massively influenced the way we travel, 
Uh, and I think if you combine that with airlines being grounded, destination management organizations thinking very differently about how they attract tourists and what sort of tourists they want to attract when it's not just about numbers, then we start to see multiple influences that might well reshape the world of travel around us. So tourist choice will inevitably play a role. But I suspect the ecosystem is is moving in, in mysterious ways right now that we probably perhaps can't quite brand. I think it comes back to that point you made right at the beginning, Ed, that I think all of us now, I mean, I'm certainly feeling it, will start to see travel as a, a privilege and not a right. Yeah. If I think about now taking my young family on, on a holiday somewhere, you know, to a hotel, you know, the, the idea of that, it just seems like such an in, insane and wonderful luxury given what's happened to us that I think we'll all be a bit more reflective about it and a bit more grateful for the ability to do it and i think that that fundamental cultural change is going to have a, a massive a massive shift yeah yes. it's like i think it's that gratitude piece it's a gratitude piece it's like as you say it's a precious thing in the same way that carbon emissions are in one way a very precious thing you know and perhaps we should be a little bit more mindful about what we choose to you know use our our allocation or our, our fair share of carbon emissions on because we we do value these things we do especially if you've got friends or family living abroad you know i'm not again i'm not i'm not anti travel in any way at all i'm a wholehearted passionate advocate and ardent supporter of travel but as i say it can't be at the cost of everyone just for you to indulge yourself whenever you feel like you should be able to yes i totally agree i said exactly the same to lucy this week about that i can't remember what watching oh it was uh, first dates hotel just watching people in the sun having a glass of wine and eating food in Italy. And I just said, God, I mean, the thought that we'll ever get to do that again feels like the greatest gift alive. Um, yeah. My, my, uh, I've got a uh, guy I work with occasionally, a guy called Jean-Paul Flintoff, and he once said this rather brilliant thing to me. He said, if, if you took away everything somebody had got and then gave it back to them, they'd be incredibly happy. And yet when we've got what we've got, we're generally very upset. So it's about remembering what you have and being happy with it. And what's happened with the world at the moment is a lot of stuff that we took for granted has been taken away and we'll be delighted to have back what we used to complain about. Amen. On that point, my use of Airbnb is uniquely within an hour or two of my house and I book one in the middle of the week. I go there on my own, I get pissed and then I drive back purely so that Lucy can get that feeling of being glad to have back the thing that she thought she couldn't wait to get rid of. (laughs) Um, So a joy as ever, we move on to uh, pointless futures, which is how we end. It feels like based on this conversation, our entire world of travel is a pointless future. Benidorm, as as is the beast that we've made it, is a pointless future. But uh, what will we discuss this week? Uh, Well, I think we're going to talk about business class, aren't we? Because it has actually turned out to be an entirely pointless future that we were previously living all this unnecessary expensive lavish uh, travel which is for a very small number of people to go and do things that we've now found out largely they can do online and sat at home in their pajamas so to be clear before we lay into it and before we discuss how many times we've all done it um what what is the issue with business class flying uh, well, the, I guess the key thing with business class travel is the fact that it takes up so much space on the plane. You know, with these the bigger planes, the A380 actually has a bar in first class, you know, so you can sort of wander up uh, and have a drink. Uh, but it's it's the amount of space taken up on the plane. And obviously, 
if you replace all of that space with other passengers and you dramatically reduce the carbon footprint per person. And it's essentially a money spinner for the airlines because they know that businesses will be sucking it up as expenses anyway. Uh, and it sort of gets taken to the, the, the illogical extreme. My favorite example is, you know, the A380, which is the world's biggest plane, biggest pa- passenger plane. And, and the idea was that you know, this was increasing the environmental efficiency per passenger by having a vast plane that could seat 600 people until a Saudi prince bought one, installed a marble hammam uh, and a ramp at the back, which allowed him to drive his armored limousine into the back of the plane. You're going, that somewhat defeated the object of the environmental efficiency. I mean, I have to hold my hands up. I mean, basically, since we met, we've known one another a few years now. Any decision I make on this, I I picture having to tell you to have done it. And I've flown business class once in my life. And that was a, a sort of justification because the minute we landed, I had to start filming. And I thought, well, I'll do it because I need to be rested and ready to go. And that was the excuse I gave. I wanted to do it because I've never done it before. And I wanted to see what the snacks and booze were like. I mean, mm-hmm. had I been more professional, I would have said, I won't drink the free alcohol on this flight, even though I can recline my chair to 180 degrees. What I did is lie back and get wasted so that the scenes when we landed were largely a write-off anyway. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I think that's the thing. It's the most expensive piss-up you ever have. Uh, yeah. you, know, you spend several thousand quid on the privilege. And as you say, because of the temptation to eat, drink all the booze, eat all the food, watch videos back to back, you don't arrive rested. <laughs> you know, you've you've basically acted like a kid in the sweet shop. I will point out it wasn't my money. Yeah. And I, I, I would never in my life, pay, I just don't respect myself enough. Um, if there were a cheaper option than economy, I would take it. I'll go in the hold if the price is right. <laughs> Wait, I, th- I think you should go and talk to Ryanair. <laughs> you sound like their <laughs> ideal customer. <laughs> I could go in an overhead locker. I've often thought it. The size of baggages people are taking on now, I think I could I could be very happy up there. I. It is my guilty secret that I have done an awful lot of business class travel, but... Have you? I have. I have. How but... much? Come on, how much? How much? How much? We've, John and I have done it once. How, how many times have you done it? I've probably done it about 100 times. Hundred times. That's dirty. It's that same justification that what's happened with me. I've been asked to go and give a lecture or a talk somewhere, and and it's usually because I don't want to be away from my family. I fly there and fly straight back. And when you're flying in somewhere, say I don't know, it could be Los Angeles. You've got to go and give a talk somewhere. The last thing they want is somebody turning up who's you know knackered. Um. So you know, obviously, what I do is you know get on the flight, get my head down, have a really good night. No, I don't. I watch all the videos, get rampantly pissed. <laughs> and uh, But because I'm such a professional, I can still deliver the speech pretty well. And the thing that's always annoyed me about business class, what I'd really want is a better toilet. And you get the mm. same toilet in business class as you get everywhere else, that tiny cramped thing. And I'm quite tall. So if I have to go for a piss on a plane, I have to double up in some kind of bizarre contortion and then the plane is moving about a bit not to go uh, full circle but i watched one of the uh, emotional experiences i had when lockdown first started i started coming out to the dog most evenings and watching sort of sport documentaries and one of the ones i watched was on andre the giant oh. um, who was so big he couldn't get into an airplane toilet so they would have to just curtain off the bit around the toilet and he would have to go in a bucket and then the uh staff would have to flush the bucket down the toilet. And that is a man who flew all across the world constantly. He was quite a drinker as well, wasn't he? A monumental, yeah, cases and cases of booze. Yeah, he must have filled a lot of buckets. 
as well I could think of on a long haul flight. I don't imagine it was a pleasant experience for anyone involved. Mm. Certainly not, you know, 1A. (laughs) (laughs) Paid for the extra leg room and you just get the sound of Andre the Giant having a massive turd the other side of a small curtain. (laughs) (laughs) On that note... (laughs) On that note, uh, well, I always think a lovely way to end is for for the individual listener listening now, what advice would you offer to me? What is the thing I can do straight away to help improve the situation as regards travel? I think it's simple. I think it's holiday less for longer, um, ideally at home more and in the UK by train and put every penny you can into the hands of your fellow citizens. Well, I think I'll back up many of the things that Ed has said, but when you do travel, if you do travel, then try and make sure that when you're spending your money, you're spending it locally with local small businesses rather than the big enormous resorts or whatever, because the more money stays in a local economy, the better it is for everybody. Thank you very much. I shall give my neighbours my money forthwith um, and <laughs> ask if I can sleep in their loft for a week, and then we'll, we'll build it up from there. Thank you both. Thank you for listening, as ever. If you if... Hang, hang on. Uh, hang on. Hang on. I think you've forgotten something, John. Oh, bollocks. The song. <laughs> Promised us a song. I did, yes. Have you got anything you like? So I can, I mean, I feel there should be a punishment element that you tell me a song you like and I will sing it so that you can never enjoy it again. It should be travel theme. So what about, what about Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday? Oh, it's a good one. You like that? All right then. What if I, what if I sing the uh, ways to get in touch uh, with the show to the tune of Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're all going to have some dinner now, but if you would like to get in touch, you can email all of the group of us at hello at John and the future com. I'm impressed, John. Well, sometimes you're grateful for the things that are taken away from you, and sometimes you get exactly what you ask for, Mark, and you don't like it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I loved it. I, I, felt for a moment, I felt for a moment I was on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, which is my world's ambition is to get onto that show. So you've given me a little something. There. This is all this podcast is about is getting you on um, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue and getting Ed two more book deals so he can have written more books. <laughs> and soon we will be there, gentlemen. Okay, that's it for this week. As ever, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week. Take care. <laughs>